0: well we we'll continue our study of church history if you don't have uh, the page entitled the patristic fathers part two they might be scattered around on the various tables rather than on the counter as we collect our papers uh, we'll do a brief review here we're studying church history we're, we're studying it from the spread of the church where jesus in acts 1 8 said you will be my witnesses in jerusalem Judea." Samaria into the uttermost parts of the earth. We saw that happen largely within the apostle's lifetime as Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire, but also to places like India, uh, perhaps China, uh, not uh, South America, uh, but um, throughout the known world at the time. We found find ourselves found ourselves last. Uh, time, we had the history portion of this rather than the theology portion, uh, looking at the first generation after the death of the apostles. The apostles provided stability to the church, unity to the church, and the great question was how will this continue past the uh, apostles, and it did. The disciples of the apostles um, carried on the tradition of the apostles. And yet, uh, as we see the second century progressing, what we're going to find is that a lot of the things that we see as becoming problems later in the church were begun by this uh, these second century fathers, not because they were wicked or didn't believe in scripture, but uh, because they... served the church um, in their time using Scripture. And we, or I should say maybe people along the way, rather than doing the same thing, simply relied on their uh, some of their teaching from their time that didn't necessarily apply for times to come. So that's kind of how you start with Scripture, and then tradition takes over. We'll talk about that as we go along. But... For, this, for our part, portion now, the patristic fathers are very sound theologically. It takes hundreds of years for them to develop to the point where some of the doctrines we hold dear today that we've come back to kind of decline to uh, what we would see as Roman Catholicism or, or kind of the institutionalized church that follows tradition more than, than Scripture in many cases. As we study history... How do we assess church history? I gave us two points so far, just by way of, of remembering. First of all, history is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. History does not tell us what we should do. It only tells us what's been done. And we need to keep that in mind. The, the scripture is still our authority. This is especially important for us because as we see these, these uh, uh, writings of the patristic fathers... Um, actually that's redundant now that I think of it, it's the patristic age, but yes, uh, the patristic age, as we see the writings develop the the traditions that come, uh, from it, uh, they took what should have been simply descriptive. This is what happened at this point of time. They made it prescriptive. This is what we need to do from here on out. We also learned last time that events shape theology and theology shape events. This is something that we're going to see every single uh, time, I, I assume, I-, I can imagine, as we look into uh, history. Events shape theology. Theology shapes events. They're not mutually exclusive. We looked at no- a number of the fathers uh, last time. We looked at a number of the writings, especially from the first part of the, um, the uh, pat- patristic age, the first part of the second century. Now we're going to look at the second part of the second century. We're going to look at a, a few more people, but we're going to change our focus a little bit. We're not just going to look at people in the writings. We're going to look at Rome and the influence that Rome had on the church, the spread of Christianity. And we're going to look at people not merely as teachers, but several of them as, as martyrs. First thing we need to cover is Roman persecution. Persecution of Christians has always been carried out since the beginning of the church to varying degrees in varying places at various times from various perpetrators. As we come to the second century, the persecution of Christians was very localized. It wasn't like we'll see later under Decius where we just make this Rule, you know, Christianity's outlawed. Go catch him and kill him. Uh, right now, it, it kind of just depends on uh, how uh, how things develop. If you notice the different persecutions or the different times that Paul was stoned, a lot of times it, it wasn't the Roman Empire saying, you know, you're evil. We got to kill you. It's it was people causing a riot and Rome being forced to come in and deal with the riot. The execution of Jesus was that way, wasn't it? Uh, Rome wouldn't have had anything to do with Jesus except the Jews made a stink and caused a riot and brought him to the point where he had to be crucified Um, because Romans, more than anything, want tranquility. We'll talk about that a little bit today. And they're willing to suppress anybody or anything. Now, as the second century comes along, Christianity does become recognized as a growing movement and as a dangerous thing, they think, for the stability of Rome. And so there there is a rule then. It becomes more of a rule that Christians should be persecuted. You might have heard before the different reasons for Christian persecution. Um, I'll, I'll recite them for you again in case you haven't heard of them. These reasons were not reasonable. In fact, we're going to read about a man named Pliny the Younger who was a prefect in the province of Bithynia modern-day northern Turkey. He uh, um, saw the effect that Christianity had had on pagan religion, which was tied to economic well-being for their district. And so he said, what is up with this Christianity thing? And he had a number of them brought in and saw that they were very noble except for one thing, they would not sacrifice to the gods and they were stubborn about that. So they were persecuted as much for their obstinacy as, as, as anything. Um, because why don't you just sacrifice to the gods? It's not that big of a deal, right? Why not just say Caesar is Lord? It's not that big of a deal. But for the Christian, it is. And so the Romans are virtuous in their own respect. They agree in law and order and they found it difficult uh, and and somewhat contradictory to persecute a person just for being a person, right? For, for being a Christian. And so they had to come up with reasons. And the reasons that came out were incest. Why incest? Because we call each other brothers and sisters and we come together for uh, meals as a congregation and those meals used to be called love feasts. And so the outsider said, "Well, you know what it's in, they're incestuous, and they could point to these the circumstantial evidence to prove that it was true. They said that we were cannibals. why? Why do you think the blood and the flesh. Yeah, we eat the body and blood of Christ. yeah they accused us of of not just cannibalism but cannibalizing infants because we regard, we think of Jesus as a baby from time to time. Um, they accused us of orgies, but really what was the most compelling reason was the stability of Rome. Whenever there was a riot and, and it was because of Christianity, Christians were persecuted. And it was easy to get per- Christians persecuted if you didn't like Christians. If you're tired of your neighbor witnessing to you, all you had to do was start a riot and say, he did it. And Rome would come in and say, all right. You're, you're going to Rome to be killed. What's interesting about that, though, see, Christianity at first was a, was a destabilizing force, in a sense, because the Romans held to traditional paganism and traditional values, traditional laws, traditional religion, and so they saw Christianity as destabilizing that worldview. What's really interesting is that when Constantine comes to power, he sees Christianity as the exact opposite. It's the one thing about which all of Rome can can rally, and it will be a stabilizing force. And actually, he's right to the point that the Roman Empire, by varying ways of understanding it, endured in many respects until the 19th century, even though politically it had fallen away because Constantine tied it to Christianity, Rome had influence to the 19th century and the fall of um, the Holy Roman Empire, or the, maybe I should say the shifting of the Holy Roman Empire. And some, many people, some people would say that, that Rome has endured, Roman thought and philosophy has endured even today because of its connection to Christianity. So, yeah, go ahead. Um, didn't they put the Christians
1: in policy and just have that as entertainment Brian's, They did. Is that true that that was Yeah. Going on? Yeah, that is. Is that about the
0: same time before Constantine then? Yep. Is yeah. Stop all that? Constantine did uh, right. Yeah, and, and Brian's going to talk about that here in a few weeks. Um oh, okay. Yeah, so it, it, there was persecution up until Constantine and then when he, his successor uh, is it Julian? I can't I think it's Julian. I can't remember exactly. Uh, name's not coming to me, but um, he reinstituted persecution uh, during his reign. And then after that, it wasn't Christianity wasn't outlawed uh, uh, in Rome again. When we think of Roman persecution, we need, really need to look at the emperors because the emperors were the one that held authority, held the authority, the autocratic rule, even though there was a Senate. It, it wasn't the Senate of old Rome. It, it was basically a kind of a, a junior partner to the governing of Rome. The emperors were the true governors, the political leaders, and they are the ones that weighed in on Christianity and judgment. Um, Trajan was the uh, emperor from the first, uh, during the first part of the second century. He was a just man. He would become, in Rome, kind of like who King David was in, um, in Israel he was he had a good reputation he he was a good king, and later kings were kind of judged according to how they measured up to Trajan now he didn't necessarily do anything more than any other king It's just that he he, he was just stable he was good Rome expanded it continued to flourish under his reign. but there came to be a blessing in the Senate for any new emperor a new emperor was coming up the Senate had this blessing on them, and the blessing went like this: Felicior, Augusto, Melior, Traiano. Be luckier than Augustus. Be better than Trajan, because Trajan was good. He was the standard. And yet, under Trajan, Christians, uh, there came to be a policy that lasted for 150 years about how we could, per- how we should persecute Christians. There was a man, as I mentioned already, Pliny the Younger who was appointed governor of Bithynia in A.D. 111. He was a proud Roman, meaning that he respected Roman law and Roman tradition. In organizing his territory when he came to power, he noticed a peculiar problem. There were so many Christians that temple worship was virtually non-existent. Temples were deserted, and the commerce, the sacrifices and things like that, that came as a part of pagan temple worship was virtually non-existent it was just it it was at a standstill so pliny wrote a famous a well-known letter to trajan wondering what to do about these christians up until now christians had been largely left alone to be dealt with by local governments whenever they saw fit they were rarely noticed in some unless i as i mentioned somebody caused a stir and blamed them for something now, though this stir was subtle, it was none, nonetheless re- relentless. Traditional paganism was being affected. So you think, but what's the big deal? You know, do better at winning converts if you want more people in your temples. But so it was a very subtle problem, but it was a relentless problem. It kept happening. So at first, Pliny brought in some Christians um, just to learn what their beliefs were. He found, as I said, nothing wrong with what they believed. They're against no Roman law, except they wouldn't sacrifice to Roman gods. So eventually uh, he would bring in Christians, force them to sacrifice to a Roman god. If they did, he let them go. If they did not, he gave them three chances to recant. If they would not recant, he had them executed, not so much for being a Christian, but for their obstinacy. Why are you so stubborn? We don't need your kind in this, uh, in this empire. But Pliny became concerned because in all of his questioning of Christians, he couldn't find a concrete law that they had broken. And as I said, he was a virtuous man. So he wrote to Trajan to ask if a Christian should be executed for a specific crime or simply for being a Christian. Trajan responded with a very short reply. I have the gist of it, which I have for you here called known known today as Trajan's Edict. Trajan's short reply, this is from Wikipedia, to Pliny, affirms Pliny's overall procedure and gives four orders. Do not seek out the Christians for trial. If the accused are found guilty of being a Christian, then they must be punished. If the accused deny they are Christians and show proof that they are not by worshiping the gods, then they must be pardoned. Anonymous accusations should not be considered. Now, there was a, po- a policy recently uh, in the army uh, installed by uh, President Clinton that sounds a lot like this. Do you remember that? Don't ask, don't tell. That's, that's basically what it was. You know, We're not going ha- to deal with it. We're not going to go around hunting down Christians. But if we find out somebody's a Christian, we're going to have to deal with it. Um, that became the policy, as I said, for the next 150 years. Now, toward the middle and end of, of the 2nd um, century, another emperor came to be. After Trajan was Hadrian, and I forget, I don't have all the Roman emperors memorized, and, but around 161 came a man named Marcus Aurelius. Again, he was another Roman emperor with a love for all things traditional. He was, he was a refined man, an author, and, and an idealist. He had a vision for a better Rome based on his romantic ideals of what Rome should be. I put for you there an excerpt from his book on Medi- of meditations. He says, think constantly both as a Roman and as a man to do the task before you with perfect and simple dignity and with kindness, freedom, and justice. Try to forget everything else and you will be able to do so if you undertake every action in your life as if it were the last, leaving aside all negligence and the opposite of passion to the dictates of reason, and leaving aside all hypocrisy, egotism, and rebelliousness against your own lot. I mean, th- those are noble words, very well, well very well crafted. In one part of his writings, he praises those who would die for a cause rather than clinging to life. But thinking of Christians, he says, but only when it comes from reason, not obstinacy, as is the case with Christians. So Everything that a Christian would be, he would respect, except they didn't believe in Roman gods and they were stubborn about that. So the persecution of Christians continue under Marcus Aurelius, under Marcus's son Commodus. Uh, Persecutions subsided to a degree for no apparent reason. We don't know. They just fewer people martyred at that point. After Commodus came a civil war known as the year of five emperors. Uh, with Rome busy with political problems, Christians were virtually ignored until Septimus Severus Severus became uh, established as the emperor. And even the beginning part of his reign wasn't bad for Christians, but it's almost like once he had consolidated his powers, like, all right, now we can get back to the business of of keeping everything uh, Roman. During the second century, there were a number of of, um, well-known martyrs. A lot of them, if you have if you've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I'd encourage you to to read that. As I said last time, the the, the lists of martyrs were were pretty complete. those uh, the later the writings came about those much earlier, the more embellishment there was, but it's still valuable to to realize they kept track of the people who died. It'd it almost be like you see brass pla brass plaques in churches of people who fought in the war and died or people who did something and and were killed. And uh, it'd be like this. I could imagine brass plaques on the early churches. uh, So-and-so martyred, so-and-so martyred, so-and-so martyred. Felicity uh, was the name of one of the martyrs in the middle of the second century. Now, there's going to be another Felicity... um, that's probably more popular, that's martyred uh, sometime later. If you're familiar with the story of Felicity and Perpetua, two young uh, uh, brides who became Christian, and yeah, we'll get to that point, but they were martyred. This is not that Felicity. Felicity was one of the consecrated widows that we read of in First Timothy 5. Not that she was alive at that time, but if you read First Timothy 5, as we've been studying in Bible study, there was a program in the early church to support widows who had no help uh, to support themselves, but then they would uh, serve the church. They would do ministry for the church. The church would support them. Felicity was one of those widows. Now, I don't know how that quite works because she has sons, and First and Timothy 5 is pretty clear that um, if you uh, have family who can take care of you, let them take care of you. So I don't know if these are are truly her sons or if... if uh, it was just people that she's helped, people who were with her. I don't know. Um, and maybe by that time, the uh, requirement for family, having family who could take care of you, was not necessary for being one of those consecrated widows. I don't know. But her work was so effective for the gospel that pagan priests eventually bought, brought her before the authorities. The prefect tried to persuade her to step uh, to stop her ministry and then threatened her with death and she she said this famous line while i live i shall defeat you and if you kill me in my death i shall defeat you all the more the prefect tried to persuade her seven sons felicity encouraged them to stand firm they did The prefect appealed to the emperor, Marcus Aurelius at the time, who gave the order for them to be executed. They were executed in in separate parts of the city, some think as as sacrifices to pagan gods in those different parts of the city. Justin Martyr was another uh, well-known martyr uh, because he was a well-known author. He was a Samaritan who grew up in a pagan household. He had this insatiable desire for knowledge seeking one philosopher after another until he came upon an old man named Trifo, uh, who was a Christian, and he found in this man something more reliable than any of the philosophers he'd studied. In an excerpt from his dialogue with Trifo, we read, "But Trifo says, But pray above all things, the gates of light may be opened to you, for these things cannot be perceived or understood by all, but only by the man to whom God and his Christ have imparted wisdom. And something about that clicked with Justin Martyr, and he came to faith in Christ. He was a Christian philosopher who was flawed in some of his beliefs, yet he defended orthodoxy and publicly debated pagans. He was executed shortly after he had defeated a pagan po- uh, philosopher in public debate. Um,
1: had they stopped crucifying people at
0: this point? I don't know. Were
1: they So they didn't crucify any of these martyrs? I mean... In my mind, I can't see them doing.
0: I mean, yeah, that's a good question. I didn't. I I,
1: know, our Savior was crucified. Sure. That what's going on yeah. Before, before all this?
0: And, and and it came to be the Colosseum, you know, where they would feed them to animals and things like that. I I, just don't, I I would have to look and just see how long crucifixion continued. I don't know why it would have stopped, but a lot of these I don't necessarily know. I guess I didn't study their their method of cruci or of execution. Oh, but
1: In the Book of Martyrs, sometimes it says if they were burned alive or if they were
0: yeah. stoned
1: or what
0: Yeah, the, the, there was a lot of just wicked, wicked, torturous kind of things that happened.
1: Some of these people may have been like Paul, too, who was not crucified because he was a Roman citizen and that was illegal to crucify True. a Roman citizen. So like mm-hmm. uh, this uh, Justin Martyr may have somehow meant that criteria, you know, some of these people may have met that criteria of being in Roman cities and being under that rule that makes them labor. You're a thorn in my side, but I still have to maintain the rule. I mean, this whole thing seems to be for the Romans about maintaining the rule of law um, and their position as the law. So if they start throwing their law out, then they start throwing their position out so that... They're trying to
0: balance all of that too. Yeah, yeah, they are. In some parts of the empire and elsewhere around the world, the, the martyrs face just gruesome deaths. I mean, I could tell you about some of them, but I'll, I'll let you read them for yourself. Just horrific things that you would could not ex- expect to happen in a civilized society.
1: They're still having martyrs. Sure. Spirit of Martyrs. is one. Ministry. Voice of the Martyrs. Sure. John, years ago, he wrote torture from Christ," and it's just a small book, but it's very compelling. Yeah, and it really wrenches your
0: heart. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it does two things when you study the martyrs. You it, it it's very sobering, um, but I think it's also very humbling, and it should motivate us. You know, there's a reason why we're not thrown into uh, prison today as Christians, because we're not preaching on, the, on in the public square. If we had preached more in the public square, we would be in jail more. That's, uh, that's on us. Not that we're going to be offensive, but we at least need to be obnoxious to a degree of, well, I shouldn't say obnoxious, but. Oh, we do. We don't, we, we, we don't use it. We don't People use it. People
1: tell us they don't want to speak up at school because they don't want to lose their job. You know, you hear Christians say stuff like that. These Christians weren't allowed to speak up. You
0: yeah, L- losing your job, you, you know, um, yeah. And that's going to become more and more common. Uh, you go to Canada, you, you can be thrown in jail uh, for um, preaching against homosexuality or for traditional Christian values actually you can be put, thrown in jail right now I, at for least for for, for for having church so during COVID yeah so um, there was a there was a PE teacher somewhere in America or not who was recently <clears throat> he refused to uh,
1: say I don't know if it was a boy or a girl or a girl or a boy or whatever but it hmm. was a news story that I saw recently so.
0: yeah not that that issue in itself is 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 valid but you know when it comes from being a christian you say i'm a christian this is the truth
1: right that that is arguably less significantly less offensive than
0: the gospel right right right. yeah and and teachers of everybody in our culture have the occasion as they interact with students to interject the gospel to point people to christ so yeah um there's this group that I want to talk to you about in France. Now, there's a lot here, and I'm not going to get through all of it today, so whatever I don't get through, use this as a springboard for you to do your own study. You can find a lot of good stuff on the Internet. Um, usually if it says, you know, historically we've held to this position, but modern scholars say this now, it, re, look look at that a little more closely and make sure that the modern scholars aren't denying truth. But um, for the most part, what you find on online um, about history, especially after the Bible times is fairly reliable because they have archeological evidence. Uh, There's this group in in France or used to be called Gaul that I call the unprepared of Gaul. Uh, We know about them from a letter that was written from uh, churches in Gaul to churches in the east describing the execution of Christians by a mob. Now, the rule in, in Gaul at this time had been that Christians weren't allowed to congregate in public places. But what these mobs would do is they be, they, they saw that Christians kind of got away from being persecuted by just, you know, meeting in their homes or whatever. And they, they didn't have Bible study at the local coffee shop, right? Um, but what these mobs would, what, what people would do then is they would form these mobs that would follow Christians around. And when Christians would ever come together in a public place, there would be cause for a, a, a riot or a stir. At one point, the, this uh, mob came so suddenly that several Christians were unprepared for the onslaught. They were taken to the authorities at their trial. A man named Bedeas Apagathus uh, uh, stood in their defense. The, uh, the constable or whoever asked, the judge asked, are you one of them? He admitted he was, and he was accused with them. Because they were unprepared, many of them didn't stand firm. So several of them were young Christians and they didn't—they uh, sacrificed to the gods or whatever that said Caesar was Lord, whatever they were required to do. What, does, what do these martyrs and especially these unprepared of Gaul, what does this tell, tell us about the anticipation of martyrdom in that time?
1: Friends and maybe somebody they lived in the Lord and now they're, you know, gone to be with the Lord, but still yeah. that's a serious thing. That would be so fearful. Yeah. But they still obeyed and got together and they worshiped and they sang
0: songs and they had the word somehow and, and the you know, church and the church thrived. Yeah. Yeah. Any other thoughts? So, What do you think they talked a lot about it at, at church on Sunday? See, see, we have, we have strategies. How do we feed people in our town? How do we make sure people are, are warm and well fed when it's cold outside? We have strategies for how do we get so-and-so to the doctor? They had to come up with strategies for how do we preach Christ and yet not in such a way that we're needlessly persecuted how do we how do we reach our neighbors when our neighbor could turn on us the strategies the things they they talked about the things they prayed about the passages of scripture they studied and even the ones that that for us would just be simply you know this is scripture they would see it in 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 light of I might have to die for this truth. Um, it's a much different mindset to think. Here we are today. Next week, Tim and Fred not, might not be with us.
1: I think I just received a book, I Get the Voice of the Martyrs, I'm just read through a series of um, several different families who have lost one member to um, persecution. And you can see that as the story goes through, they're preparing, and they're, the husband or the wife speaks to each other to be prepared, but to stand firm. And so we can see that today that that's going on the preparation for martyrdom in these countries that are, um, you know, Nigeria and one of them was Laos, and um, it's you know, we can we can we can see what they're doing and how they're yeah. preparing and acting yeah. and living. After that
0: with your children. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of, one of the things that we might have as a prayer request is I have to go to this place and do business. And this person knows I'm a Christian. If he doesn't like the way I do business, he, he might take advantage of me by letting, letting somebody know. Um, let me pray for you about that. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and and not just to pray for safety, but I think their prayer was, in that moment, Lord, help me to stand firm.
1: Have you heard what the church in Canada I mean? I know they had to go underground.
0: Yeah, I don't know so if that's changed.
1: Mm-hmm. But I don't know yeah. how they need to how they let people know. Yeah.
0: Now there were a group of people yeah, I don't know, sorry yeah, sorry. Uh, now there were a group of people at this time that actually embraced uh, persecution almost sadistically. That's not what we want to be either, but we do want to be prepared. And the reason why is because there there were a number of of, of professing Christians who came to that point where they had to sacrifice to the gods, and they sacrificed to the gods, but they were truly believers, and so now they want to be back into the ch- go back into the church. What do we do with these people? They were known as the lapsi. And Pastor Don, I think, might mention that. I'm going to talk about that next next week. What do you do with these people who, under uh, threat of death, did not stand for Christ? Are they truly saved? Should we welcome them back? Should we trust them? What, what if they do it again? Now, in the last 10 minutes here, I'm not going to get through the last... Uh, couple of pages, but I want to talk a little bit, we'll we'll, we'll try as much as we can here. Rome wasn't all bad. Um, For all the persecution, we we need to understand that there were many, many uh, characteristics of Rome that were very positive. While Rome was persecuting Christians, it was also the context for the spread of Christianity to the farthest reaches of the empire and beyond. And so what we're going to see develop is a symbiosis between Rome and the church to where the, the, at this point, the church is spreading and thriving because of Rome. And as we get closer to Rome's decline, we're going to see uh, Rome continuing because of the stability of the church. So right now, uh, the church is heavily dependent upon Rome. In time, Rome will be heavily dependent upon the church. You've heard of the, I'm sure of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It came under Augustus Caesar during the time of Christ. After a period of people vying for leadership and priority, Augustus put into a place a time of relative peace and peaceful succession that lasted, at least as a facade of peace, it lasted for centuries. Um, It was also a facade of traditional Roman morality and virtue which we must never mistake with biblical morality and virtue. It was a peace that was kept in place by a standing army that was always pushing Rome's border to expand. How might a standing army ensure the spread of Christianity? What do you think?
1: Right. The conflict on the boundary rather than the the yeah. country.
0: And there were a lot of Roman soldiers who were, I don't know if a lot, but there were Roman soldiers who were Christians. Um, soldiers find themselves in, in very <laughs> scary places sometimes, and yet the Christian is going to be the one uh, with um, confidence, uh, assured of his salvation. He's going to stand out, and he's going to have a message for those who are scared. So the standing army spread Christianity just by expanding the borders of Rome, but also interming- with, with the intermingling of Roman soldiers who were Christians with, with the regular Roman soldiers. Roman culture, looks like I spelled it wrong, sorry about that. Uh, they were so, Roman. Romans were so concerned with peace, as I mentioned before, that they were kind of hands-off to any kind of movement within the empire, as long as it didn't interrupt their collection of, of taxes, the spread of commerce, or threaten their political power, it's like, as long as we're getting our money, as long as people are able to do business, and as long as you don't make a, 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 cause a problem for our political power, you can do pretty much whatever you want to do. Rome didn't care what religion you followed, as long as you d- it didn't cause a stir. This also, as I think we've kind of seen, left room for Rome to be manipulated. Unscrupulous people would often cause a riot, blame the Christians, and Rome would carry out the persecution, not because they cared, but because you'd woken them up from their nap, as it were. It's like, "Leave us alone, we're trying to take a nap, you know, go kill a bunch of Christians, and then go back to sleep." The po- policy of religious tolerance changed as the latter emperors saw traditional Roman religion as the way to bring stability to the empire, and Christianity then became a direct threat to that. The Roman roads helped with uh, the, the expansion of, of not just Rome, but Christianity. To move your army, you need roads. It also helps in the spread of information like the gospel. Roman roads are just amazing. I, I don't know why our engineers don't learn from them. There, uh, many of them are still around today in pristine condition. How, how does that happen after thousands of years? And, and yet they were... They were there and it made it possible for Christ, for the church to grow and spread. Common language. We they didn't have for basically all of Europe and North Africa and the Near Middle East or the Middle East. That uh, um, you you had one religion that or one language that you could use to talk to people about Christ, even if you had your localized languages. And just that with the expansion of Rome, as we've already. Talked about as Rome expanded, so did the Pax Romana, so did the roads, so did the army, so did the commerce, so did the gospel. There's a... F- yeah. Uh, what was, was the language? Is it Catholic? Greek was the... Oh, Was the language. There are three teachers that I, I'll just cover briefly within the last few minutes. If we don't have questions, I'd rather pause and and take any questions or comments from the material we've studied so far but if not we'll just briefly mention these three okay Clement of Alexandria the important thing about him was that uh, he was was born in Athens to non-Christian parents we don't know when Christ found him but when Christ found him, like Justin Martyr, he had this insatiable desire for knowledge. He went around looking for different philosophies, different philosophers that might help him, or I shouldn't say teachers, I should say, not necessarily philosophers, but teachers who would teach them the truth. Eventually, he ended up in Alexandria and studied under a man named uh, Pantanus. He, in turn, was the teacher, Clement was the teacher of origin, who was a well-known man from history, we'll talk about in coming weeks Clement was not a pastor. He was a theologian and um, a philosophical theologian. I, should, I think I should call him that. Uh, he was a defender of the faith, but he tapped into previous philosophers like Plato, believing that all truth is from God. We, you might consider him to be a bit like C.S. Lewis, who had a bunch of interesting ideas about Christianity that didn't all come from the Bible, and weren't all necessarily true. Um, so Clement would have been one of the guys who would have said, you know, all truth is God's truth. So wherever you find truth, you find God. Which is true, but you also have to realize that all error is Satan's error. And wherever you, wherever you find error, it comes from Satan. So that's why we stick to scripture. He was an interpreter, an interpreter of scripture, but not a literalist. He, he is among those who would be credited for a lot of, Greek philosophy that infected the church that we still have today. We could probably do a whole class on things we believe today that are affected by Plato and Socrates. So, uh, not that we would believe exactly what they believe, but um, influenced. Irenaeus, uh, different than Clement, was born in Smyrna, discipled by Polycarp, who you'll remember was a disciple of John. John. Apostle. He eventually became a pastor in what is today Lyon, France. Uh, he is known for his defense of Christianity against heresy, helping to define Christian orthodoxy. His most important surviving work is against heresy. He wrote against the Montanists and traced Christian Gnosticism back to Simon Magus, who was that Samaritan magician that wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Irenaeus believed in the public rule of faith, the idea that that the church rightly expounding the scriptures was the way to engage in proper worship, stay true to the faith, and defend against heresy. Which, that sounds great, and we agree with that. But what happened is that eventually, in the the imperial church, the church became the... um, kind of the authority, not necessarily the scripture. So we can kind of see, it, begin to see, it's like, okay, it's not just you alone with your Bible that says what we should do or what we should believe. It's the church with the Bible. And then it's the church, uh, you know, interpreting in their own way the Bible. So that you can kind of see how that progresses to become church and tradition. Above, above all, Irenaeus was a pastor. He didn't care about the speculative philosophy of Clement. He wanted to protect his flock and instruct him. In him, we also see the growing influence of Rome. He, he described the church in Rome as the seat of, uh, of a chain of unbroken authority from the time of the apostles. Um, I'll let you read Tertullian on your own. Uh, there was a question there that probably had, uh, we could have devoted a lot of time, some time to, but we won't. I'll let you read that on your own and you can look him up. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this uh, time just to look at church history. So much to study. So much happening um, that uh, we can see is still happening in parts of the world today. Think of these martyrs and pray, Lord, that if we ever have an occasion to die for you, that we would be prepared to do so rather than um, fold under pressure to renounce Christ. Give us wisdom. Give us strength. And help us to be mindful and prayerful for those people around the world who are constantly preparing for martyrdom. In Jesus' name, amen.